I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M-E-E-R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking with Candace Willie, author of the new book, Monarch, a novel. It's a rather mind-bending read that uses a rather morbid conspiracy theory known as Project Monarch, a supposed sub-project of MKUltra, the CIA's infamous... Cold War era mind control program to explore themes related to the violence of consumer society, patriarchy, identity formation, America's obsession with dead girls like the murdered child beauty pageant queen John Benet Ramsey, and much, much more. Even if you haven't read the novel yet, you're going to want to listen to this conversation because it gets pretty philosophical without any type of spoilers. Trust me when I say that this is going to be a conversation that is definite food for thought. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Candace Whaley on her debut novel, Monarch. 
available now from Soft Skull Press. Welcome to Parallax Views, an author I've really been interested in having on the show because of her new novel, Candace Willey, who has written a book for Soft Skull Press simply called Monarch, a novel. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. And this is a, a bit of a mind bender, this book. And I've really enjoyed it thus far. So I guess where I want to start is maybe without giving, you know, the, the twists and the turns away, how would you give maybe a, a, a brief spoiler-free summary of the, the general story and maybe the main characters? Sure. Yeah. Well, the general story of Monarch is that it is about um, a woman who was a contestant in child beauty pageants. Um, and she starts to have sleepwalking episodes and experiences lost time as a teenager. And in her pursuit of finding out what she's doing during this lost time, which she's especially curious about because she's waking up with um, bruises and a strange taste in her mouth. And she does various things to try to keep herself from getting out of bed at night and sleepwalking or whatever's happening. Um, she finds out that she has been uh, an agent in a deep state government program called Project Monarch. And from there, she goes on to figure out what in her life has been real and what has been a part of this deep state uh, agency. So this main character, uh, Jessica Klink, uh, she narrates the story for us and she has issues with memory and really she's trying to put together a puzzle in a lot of ways. And one thing that I found very interesting and I wanted you to talk about was she goes from talking about circles to then saying, now we're going down a spiral. Could you explain uh, why she sort of makes that transition? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was thinking about different narrative forms, right? So when I started writing Monarch, I was finishing up my uh, dissertation, which was on memory and trauma studies. And I was thinking a lot about linear narratives um, and how those contrast with nonlinear or fragmented narratives. And this idea that in order to tell a story um, about something, about a great violence or about a trauma of any kind, you can't really move within, um, within that typical narrative because you don't have all of the pieces to go from A to B to C and et cetera, right? So the circle, the first half of the novel, uh, Jessica frequently refers to moving within the circle and having to go back within the circle and restart the story. So I think the circular narrative, right, is more like the narrative before one has incorporated or understood a traumatic event. So the idea that the circle moves in the same direction, but it always comes back to where it started. You can never get out of the loop. You just keep meeting the same version of yourself, thinking the same thoughts. So we get the spiral in the second half after Jessica has encountered um, 
these violent photos and come to the realization that there's something that's been going on in her life that she's never understood. Um, and that maybe she can start to figure out what that is, which is that she's been an agent in this program. Um, and from that point, I think the, um, the statement that she, she makes is um, more towards the end of the book actually. Um, but yeah, that moment when she says that this has been a study in circles, but now we're gonna start to move outwards into a more violent shape of the spiral. So the spiral you know, is similar to the circle, but you start to move in a new direction um, by degrees, right? Moving further and further into a new thought. Um, so we use this language of triggering a lot now, right? But the idea that to be triggered is to start to get to break out of the circle and get to incorporate parts of yourself or understand these things that you didn't understand before. And at the same time, I thought a lot about the spiral um, as more palimpsested than a circle, right? So it's a narrative form that allows layers of time and memory to happen on top of each other. Uh, so instead of saying, we're moving from this to this to that, it's saying all of these things are happening at the same time in a way. We're holding all of these experiences um, and beliefs about the self uh, together in one moment. So I didn't include this in the original notes, but everything you just said, I feel like it sums up uh, one of the great lines at the beginning of the book, and, and maybe you could comment on it. Uh, you know, at the beginning, Jessica says, there is no way to tell the story of a great violence. I think in a lot of ways, uh, everything you just said uh, sort of sums up what she means by that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, the traumatic uh, incident is marked by the fact that it can't be spoken about until it's understood, right? Um, so this idea of, um, of unutterability, um, of not being able to explain what happened, right? Um, that's inherently what trauma is, when something happens that we don't have a context for. And it's not until the context arrives that we can explain it. Um, so that first line, yeah, really points to this idea of there not being um, a way or perhaps just one way to talk about something exceptionally violent. So I wanna get into how you first became aware of, uh, I, I guess it's one of the plot points, is this thing, MKUltra and specifically uh, a supposed and I would say completely unproven and very fantastical mm -hmm. thing known as Project Monarch. And uh, for my part, I would just say, I, I learned about that through the dark corners of the internet it's a very weird conspiracy that, I mean, to me, it's like conspiracy pornography with mind-controlled sex slave assassins and whatnot. So I have to ask, how did you come across uh, yeah. the strange tale of Project Monarch? Yeah, I like the term conspiracy pornography a lot. I've thought of it um, as MK Ultra fan fiction as well. Um, I came across it. I was listening to a podcast about Jean Benet Ramsey, a true crime pod podcast, and they at the end posited all of these different theories 
um, for what is you know still a cold case. Um, and one of the really out there theories was this theory that Jean Benet Ramsey's mother, Patsy Ramsey, who was um, a beauty queen, um, was also an agent in this thing called Project Monarch, which is an offshoot of MK Ultra. I think MK Ultra has something like um, 149 offshoot programs that are real. So it's you know conceivable that there are some that are totally made up, right, by um, people interested in MK Ultra. So this theory um, about the Ramses is that basically Patsy was an agent. Um, and that Jean Benet was being trained or groomed to be um, monarch agent as well. And um, the theory gets really granular. One thing that I remember about it is that the ransom note that was left, that it's um, really uh, incoherent and that that is an intentional um, incoherency because those were uh, trigger words uh, for Patsy Ramsey and that they caused her to corrupt basically and murder her own daughter um, or that there was some reason why she had to murder Jean Benet because Jean Benet knew something she shouldn't know or something right so that was where I first heard uh, about Project Monarch. Uh, and then, you know, I started to research it and I realized that it mostly comes from this one woman, Kathy O'Brien, O'Brien, Transformation O'Brien. of America. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, who first started to talk about it, I think on TV in 95, a little bit, a little bit before the internet as we know it, um, starts to come into existence. And she has a uh, actually much more in-depth well, you know, she basically invented the theory, right? Um, and what she alleges is kind of an old school conspiracy theory. It's interesting because there seems to be no agenda to it in the way that conspiracy theories like QAnon now have more political agendas. But essentially Kathy O'Brien is just claiming um, that she was an agent in Project Monarch, which um, recruited, uh, I think it was people with, um, multiple personality disorders. I can't quite remember. Or, or disassociative um, identity disorder, yeah. Okay. Uh, and that they reprogrammed them through MK Ultra techniques, um, like, you know, repatterning, uh, ritual abuse, really connected to kind of the satanic panic of the 80s, um, and used ECT and LSD, uh, in order to implement new personalities. So it's interesting. I want to stick on this for a minute because, uh, you know, the, O'Brien comes up with this theory and then, you know, other women start coming out. Uh, and I, I sort of see it as like a, a mass psychogenic thing. I, I don't believe uh, Project Monarch was real. But what I found interesting reading stuff like Transformation of America, where she has scenes of, you know, major world leaders doing most dangerous game type activities against their victims. There is like something weirdly metaphorical you can almost find in it. Uh, I assume you could find a, you, you could use the story of Monarch as a metaphor for things like patriarchy and other issues we face, face even if you think the whole theory itself is, is BS. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that, you incorporate it, uh, Monarch, into the story um, for use as a metaphor or 
what, what did you see in it in terms of being able to tell a story and deal with certain themes? Yeah, well, okay. So I was already sort of trying to work on two novels at the time. And one was a novel about a woman who dyes her hair blonde and then starts to think she's disappeared. So this idea that the more one conforms to culture, the more one is erased by that same culture. Um, and then the other novel was sort of more elegiac about um, a child who had been murdered in my hometown. And that was just sort of one of those things at a write, as a writer that I knew that I would always write about someday. And then I heard the Project Monarch Theory and I realized that maybe these two things that I was working on were the same thing. The themes were going to come together in some way and that the Monarch Theory, conspiracy theory, um, could be a metaphor, as you said. So this idea just seems so, it almost seems to me like a metaphor that O'Brien has come up with herself to cope, right? That we have this idea of someone who um, is trying to tell themselves a story uh, about something awful that happened to them probably as a child, about some kind of abuse that happened. And right, all conspiracy theories are an attempt to bring together different points um, that we can't otherwise connect, just to try to make sense out of chaos. So this idea that um, violence inflicted on one as a child um, or violence at all is a kind of chaos, right? And then the monarch theory tries to explain how that happens in some way or tries to make sense of these different points. So yeah, I saw this as um, this theory, especially the beauty pageant part of it, right? That um, if monarch is a metaphor um, for how we come to understand experiences that haven't been integrated, then the beauty pageant part of it um, is really interesting because we start to think about how we understand ourselves and think about how perhaps we've been programmed um, by culture in order to accept potentially like abusive parts of culture, right? So the idea that beauty pageant contestants are targeted um, or recruited from Project Monarch because they're really obedient, right? Um, they are intelligent, they have great memories and they're beautiful and charming. Um, so these are all things that culture privileges in women, right? And none of those are especially nefarious on the face, right? But on the other hand, if you think about culture in the 90s, which is when Monarch is set, a lot of these things start to move into a much more obviously violent territory of, um, of cultural programming that really privileges things like um, heroin chic or eating disordered culture um, and really start to like display this open violence, especially against women um, in a really consumer driven way. Uh, so I, yeah, so all of those things just came together to think about how cultural programming itself is a kind of violence and how O'Brien is already picking up on that through the connection uh, to beauty pageants and how especially child beauty pageants, um, which began in America, right? They're distinctly American phenomena, uh, really put a focus on and celebrate traits, especially in women 
that lend themselves to a sort of um, erasure of one's real personality potentially. I want to get back to that element, but, but first, if we could, I, I want to talk about the book's cover and I don't know uh, because of my background, it may not show up perfectly, but mm-hmm. uh, the cover is a rather washed out uh, picture of a Barbie doll face. Uh, why that cover? What, what, I mean, it's very striking, but it, yeah. it, it seems resonant. What do you make of it? Yeah, I didn't have very much to do with the cover. It's designed by um, Michael Salu, um, who's um, company is called House of Thoughts. And what I know about it is that it's a digitally native cover. So essentially he's designed it with the idea that we encounter covers online before we encounter them in the bookstore. Um, and that he was picking up, that he did this 3D construction, I guess, of the frost on the cover, which is, um, there's a part of the book where we find out that Jessica's mother sleeps in a cryo to preserve herself at a certain age. Um, and so I think what the designer, well, what the designer was picking up on there was that this Barbie doll face is looking out from the cryo, cryogenic chamber and we're seeing the frost there on the book. So kind of this idea, I think that there's, um, uh, a glass between us and the Barbie. So there's like something pointing to being on display, right? Um, behind behind like the terrarium or museum glass. And I think, I mean, I think it must've come from a line in the book where Jessica is described as the love child of Barbie and Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, I, I thought it was striking too because you were talking about cultural programming. And uh, I, I know this has become you know, a very well-known feminist critique, but there, there is like a cultural programming element to the whole uh, popularity of Barbie dolls and, and uh, you know, what they teach young girls they should be, you know, according to society. Which is also, I think, blatantly violent because to suggest that that is the ideal in terms of appearance is to suggest something that is totally unachievable and that can only attempt to be achieved through you know, severe eating disordered behavior or extreme surgeries. Um, and so the idea, and also I think, I, I think this made it into this version of the book. It, if it didn't, it was in the very, very last versions. But there's a little moment where Jessica reflects on the song Barbie Girl by Aqua. And she thinks about um, how she finds out from this sort of uh, gothic nanny character um, who takes care of her as a teenager that the Barbie was originally um, a sex toy in Germany that was repurposed to become uh, a children's toy in America. So like the further you trace back these things that are used uh, as you know, I think of as a programming device, but we can all agree are just commonly uh, teaching or play play devices for children, right? The more disturbing it becomes. So I also didn't include this in the notes. So if, if, if you have to answer this in a way that's brief or just completely off the cuff, uh, since we're talking about Barbie dolls and, and, and whatnot and, and this sort of image of women where they have to be, oh, 
beautiful and skinny and all this. I mean, what is the role, I guess, of sex within the novel? Because I remember there was a line, uh, I think, where Jessica says, you know, for a while I became a bit of a nympho. So what, yeah. what role does sex play in, in Monarch? Yeah, that line was kind of a mirror of the line, um, I became a perv for oblivion after that. Um, and then- A classic um, line. <laughs> uh, and then that line is, um, I became a nympho for, I became a bit of a nympho for edges. So this idea of um, perv for oblivion, right? Uh, of numbing out, of like trying to cope in ways that aren't, productive potentially, but are coping mechanisms. And then a nympho for edges, this idea of getting to the end of something, right? I think that's the line that begins the Y2K chapter. Um, and that begins like the end, the beginning of the end of Jessica's journey in the book. Um, so, but in terms to answer your question in terms of the role of sex in the novel, so much of what I was thinking about in terms of programming, uh, especially in the 90s, uh, regards how we should think about our sexuality. I was especially thinking about, uh, you know, the famous uh, don't ask, don't tell policy of the Clinton administration um, and just the homophobia of the 90s. And I was just always been really interested in this idea that it's desire that can introduce us to ourselves. So even if you're a person um, who has really uh, conformed potentially in response to market forces or commodity culture, right? And um, like Jessica is really conventionally attractive and is doing everything that culture tells you you should be doing uh, to be a successful, attractive teenage girl, right? Um, it, or that magazines are telling you you should be doing. I mean, I remember reading magazines in the 90s that I don't think would ever, the articles would ever get published today that were for teenage girls, right? Um, about uh, things like wearing makeup to uh, emphasize the way like facial lips mimic sexual organs, right? In magazines for teenage girls. So I was really interested to get back to my thread here in this idea that it's desire, specifically Jessica's desire for another pageant contestant, which is um, forbidden at this time in history and by her family um, and in, in the Midwest, um, that this is would be part of what pulls her through and pulls her out of the oblivion and shows her that there are aspects of herself that are undeniable, that are also not sanctioned by consumer culture and social programming. So there's something really salvific, I think, about sex in Monarch. It's the thing that, the thing that brings you back to yourself. So the other question I had that wasn't in the notes was, how do you relate to the character of Jessica? Is, is Jessica based on uh, anyone that you had in mind, like what, what's, where does yeah. Jessica come from within your creative consciousness? I thought of Jessica, well, you know, when I was writing Monarch, it was a major point in history for um, things like the Me Too movement. And, you know, I started writing it 
a year after Trump became president. And I think it, I was a poet before, and I think the only reason that I wanted to write a novel was because I wanted to speak in a much more direct way about what was going on politically and culturally in America, um, specifically within the context of the Trump presidency. Uh, and then there was the Larry Nassar trial, there was the Jeffrey Epstein breakage of that coverage, um, but more so in terms of Jessica's voice and who I was thinking of with Jessica. I remember hearing the testimony of um, Chanel Miller. Um, I think, gosh, I can't remember what's, I think she was a Stanford student um, who had been raped and uh, the rapist was, uh, the judge decided not to um, find him guilty. And part of the reasoning behind that was um, that he was a young man and that he still had so much of the future. Do you remember this? Was that the Brock Turner case? Brock Turner. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, I, I think it's telling of our culture that, you know, I'm assuming I'm not the only person that did this, but I remembered Brock Turner. I did not remember the name of the victim that you initially mentioned. Yeah. And I think that's widespread in culture, but go on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll touch on that in, in a second. So I remember hearing her testimony and just being unbelievably moved by it. Um, and I started to think about Jean Benet because I was thinking, you know, I was working through the beginning of the book at that point. And I started to think about what would have happened um, if Jean Benet had lived. Uh, and, you know, that of course went into this more spy novel genre driven area, but at the core of Monarch, there is a very earnest, sincere, and um, elegiac book for uh, people who have survived or endured trauma, right? So part of Jessica comes from this idea of, of what if JonBenet Ramsey had lived and gotten revenge. Um, and then also the, um, testimony of Christine Blasey Ford in uh, Brett Kavanaugh's hearing, which I always think of as the testimony of Christine Blasey Ford. I never think of it as the Supreme Court confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, right? Um, which is pretty, pretty ahistorical in uh, response to your point of like whose names we remember and don't. Um, but so I was really thinking of those women. I was thinking of women who figured out ways to speak uh, after uh, extreme violence and while they're in recovery or in between the space of violence and survival. And maybe the idea that one never really survives, but still is. I like that dedication that you have at the beginning. I wrote this book for women who survived and women who didn't, but mostly I wrote it for those still somewhere in between. And I actually uh, am glad you mentioned uh, this idea of, of the those stuck in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I think we read so many narratives, especially um, about violence, where there's some kind of catharsis in the end, and we see the main character get recovered. And there's this suggestion that what they have gone through to understand what happened to them. So in the case of Monarch, we see in the second half of the book, Jessica hunt down, um, the, hunt down the operatives of Project Monarch, right? 
um, in order to find out, or she believes that they've murdered um, a child in her hometown. Um, but, and then after, after that journey has been gone through, there's this idea, you know, that the person is okay, that they'll go on to live a normal life. But I don't think that that's ever true. I think you can go on to live a good life um, and a whole life, but I don't think that you ever get back in the circle, right? You're in the spiral forever after that. So I, I want to come back to uh, the John Benet Ramsey bit, but first uh, I did have a question uh, that I should have asked earlier about uh, the book, and that's that it is pretty bereft in a lot of references to '90s pop culture, mm-hmm. including Riot Girl, you know, stuff like uh, Bikini Kill, if people remember that, uh, mm-hmm. Child Beauty Pageants, Unsolved Mysteries, uh, and the main character is obviously working through her memories. Uh, and through her past in the 90s. But is there more uh, to the 90s references than that? And um, is there anything that you can say about the role of pop culture and the images it produces uh, as it relates Mm -hmm. to the story you're telling in Monarch? Yeah, well, initially this was said in the 90s because that's when I was a teenager. Um, but I remember, um, I remember the day after Christmas, I was 12 when the news, um, about JonBenet Ramsey broke and my mom is a real true crime addict. She's been one since way, way, way before it was popular to be one. Um, so I lived in a house where the news was always on, um, and grew up, you know, with the 24 hour news cycle in the background. But I remember um, finding out about JonBenet Ramsey, like right at that age where I was still young enough that I didn't really get it, that this wasn't the first little girl who had ever been murdered. It seemed like that must be the case because it was on the news constantly and it was such a huge story that it must be extraordinary and unusual. Um, So then I remember, you know, not that long after finding out that this happens all the time, we just heard about JonBenet Ramsey. She was, you know, to follow the theory of the most dead theory, right? JonBenet Ramsey was like the most dead ever. Um, And so I was thinking about that and how the 90s potentially are an era that facilitated an obsession with a story like that and with stories like, um, oh, the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson. And then we get similar but very different stories with things like Amy Fisher and Lorena Bobbitt, right? Um, But that the 90s is obsessed with the violent woman or the dead woman. And then in less direct ways, we get a culture of, um, like I already mentioned, heroin chic, but also models, right? Looking back, I mean, you asked me earlier if Jessica was based on anyone, and in many ways, she's based on me in a lot of ways in the 90s. I mean, I was a subscriber to Top Model Magazine and in every fashion magazine. If people, if people are unfamiliar, you mentioned heroin chic. I'm going to have a few younger listeners here <laughs> that are uh, like, um, what is it, Gen Z. And they, yeah. they may be like, what is heroin chic? So maybe you could just very briefly describe that. I mean, because it horrifies me when I look back on uh, a lot of the bands I listened to and they would have, uh, you know, uh, album covers with like these women that they, they looked like they were uh, glamorizing 
heroin use are supposed to be addictive. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they kind of look like corpses sometimes. So just this idea that to look like one was using a drug that was just about killing you and that you were like skeletally thin and um, uh, unkempt in some way, you know, not, you know, neglectful in certain ways, but at the same time, still very sexy. So I think Kate Moss is probably um, the main person I think of when I think of heroin chic. Um, so yeah, the glamorization of doing things that are blatantly and obviously destructive and potentially lead to lead to death, right? But that this was also, I think, yeah, for Gen Z listeners, this was something to aspire to aesthetically. Um, and there are fashion designers um, and all kinds of uh, aspects of pop culture that were, you know, privileging this look and like saying this is this is the trend right now. So like how we, how weird to say like the trend is to look like someone who's almost dead to put it in a different way. But we get this like right we get this throughout time. There are a couple of references um, to this in Monarch. I mean certainly the 90s didn't invent the obsession with the dead girl's body. We get it with Edgar Allan Poe and um, his Annabelle Lee poem, right? So, yeah, yeah. So part of- Do you of think in a way it's almost, I mean, you use the word obsession, but in some ways it almost eerily becomes like a, I mean, this is a more strong term for it, but it's like we fetishize dead girls. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I guess the thing that I haven't or I've forgotten to mention so far is also it feels like the 90s was invested uh, in fetishized suicide in a way that it hadn't maybe been fetishized before, arguably, um, with novels like Prozac Nation or, I mean, I remember the resurgence of The Bell Jar at that time, the movie later 90s, I think, Virgin Suicides. Um, but yeah, yeah, there was a fetishization of being, um, of embracing death or uh, thinking about it or appearing as if dead. It's just very, very, very strange. Um, yeah, so I think I was talking about um, the 90s and model culture. Yeah, uh, so this was also an era where even if you're looking at the healthier side of like the more Cindy Crawford, Claudia Schiffer. Um, well, even, even not to, not to interrupt you, even yeah. if you're looking at the, the whole riot girl thing, right? Like this, mm -hmm. this is a feminist rebellion. I mean, a, a lot of the riot girl uh, aesthetic, I mean, these were still sort of conventionally attractive aesthetics being played with. Yeah. Well, you just, I think it, you just simply couldn't be amplified. You just would not be put in the media's eye unless you uh, fit into certain beauty standards at that point. So which isn't to say that there weren't lots of riot girl musicians who existed that really lived the philosophy that they espoused, but we didn't see them as much as we saw like beautiful Courtney Love, right? Um, yeah. So there were all these things. Um, and the thing I was going to mention with the uh, um, model culture and the obsession with models at that time is the way that that directly connects to um, 
something kind of similar to the project, the idea of recruiting from beauty pageants um, and this idea of like model agencies and the connection between model agencies and um, sex for hire, right? That uh, we didn't really know that connection so directly when I started writing Monarch and then the Epstein case broke and it was like this thing that seems unbelievable, right? Is, you know, truth is stranger than fiction is actually happening. There's like actually a private island where uh, women who are uh, going to modeling agencies are being like recruited from the books of those agencies, right? And that's very strange, but also we can reflect back on that and see like, no, on the face of it, a lot of what was going on with what we were seeing in like editorial photo shoots and who was a model is already really exploitative, right? So you'd mentioned uh, another side of this. Uh, so there's the fascination with the dead girls, but there's also the fascination with violent women. And while I was reading the book, uh, one person, uh, real life person, that makes a, a few appearances throughout the text is Lorena Bobbitt. And uh, maybe you could explain who Lorena Bobbitt was for, for that younger Gen Z audience and why she sort of sprinkled throughout the text. Yeah. Well, Lorena Bobbitt was, um, I think, I think that she was from Virginia. I can't remember. Basically, all you need to know about Lorena Bobbitt is um, that she was a spouse of a really abusive husband, John Bobbitt. Um, and one day um, she snapped and she cut off his penis and I think she was driving away and she threw it out the window. And then after that, so there's you know a trial of Lorena Bobbitt and um, as is mentioned in Monarch, um, she's a famous example of an attempt to use the insanity defense, which is uh, rarely, rarely a recourse as a defense because it's very hard to prove. Um, but what her defense was attempting to say was that she was a victim of domestic violence um, who was repeatedly traumatized to the extent that one day she acted uh, in a way that she could not control which that's the insanity defense, right? To do something um, that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't do with like, I think the definition is with an officer at the elbow. At the elbow. Um, so that's how Monarch becomes, or how Lorena Bobbitt becomes important to Monarch is this idea of what's the threshold potentially of where one is, pushed so far that they act beyond the limits of what they would normally do, specifically within a really violent way. And of course, uh, it was really significant to me um, that Bobbitt was, was a victim of domestic violence and you know, violence against women that was um, um, normalized in some ways. And, and then this happens and the weird thing to people isn't, isn't that this woman has been being beaten and raped by her husband for years, but that she's done this, that she's cut off his penis, right? And then after this um, very, very typical 90s, her husband goes on 
um, to become an adult film star. And yeah, he, uh, yeah. Not only an adult film star. I mean, he make. I think he. I think he did something called Franken Penis, and then he was appearing mm-hmm. on like WWE wrestling television. He becomes a, a, a fifteen minutes of fame celebrity. Yeah, yeah. So I'm. Um, yeah, that's um pretty great interesting anecdote to describe the time that he gets to become a celebrity, even though we know that he was an abuser. You can, I mean, immediately I think of OJ Simpson, um, that this is a time, and to some degree we still live in a time um, where men that we know to be abusive men can still attain celebrity and power right out in the open. And there's no problem with that for the most part. Whereas I'm not really sure, to be honest with you, what happens to Lorena Bobbitt. But in Monarch, she becomes a sort of hero to Jessica. So just a few more brief questions here, um, or or we can, you know, uh, get into it a little bit more. But um, it's interesting when we talk about Lorena Bobbitt or Nicole Brown Simpson, and and of course, John Benet Ramsey, it's always struck me. I, I remember saying to a person once, after watching a, a special on on John Benet Ramsey, I said, "You know, none of us really even know who John Benet Ramsey is. Even after watching these specials, we're just left with these images of her in popular media and these documentaries talking about her death. Uh, all we're left with is sort of the." The mask, if you will, because you talk about masks in the book. Uh, I was wondering if you could discuss, uh, I guess, the disconnect between the popular images we have of a person and their true self and the way that that can create disassociation. Yeah, well, I mean, there are two kinds of disassociation there, right? There's disassociation for, uh, for the audience um, between who, what we see and who the person really is. Monarch deals more with the disassociation between the interior and the exterior. So the idea of um, how, how do you know when you've become your own mask? Um, so I guess I was thinking of masks in a few different ways. Um, I mean, in terms of American literature, um, the first thing that I think of in terms of masks is like the famous line from um, the Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot, like the modernist masterpiece. Um, you prepare, uh, what is it? Prepare a face to meet the faces you will meet. Uh, there will be a time to murder and create. So this is a poem uh, that is about like the difference between who you are when you're by yourself Uh, and your deepest secrets and desires, and then actively like preparing the face, preparing the mask to go out and meet the world. So throughout American literature, I think we see masks as a protection, um, as something that we put on so that we can go traverse through culture either without being noticed or without being excluded or without being um, subjected to a kind of to violence, right? Um, But at the same time, I've thought a lot about the mask, especially in the context of Monarch. Um, I, let me see, yeah. Do you mind if I just read this short section that's- No, go right ahead, love to. Yeah, so Jessica's being like mentored by the director of the Project Monarch. 
Um, and he's giving her a lesson and he gives her this lecture on masks. Um, and she says, it was common, he said, to fear a person in a mask. In fact, in fact, maskophobia is a normal stage in childhood development. To be deprived of basic knowledge about a person's facial musculature, to be uncertain of the origins of a human voice, this is to experience horror, he explained. He proceeded to extol the virtues of wearing a veil myself. If you were ever kidnapped, your attacker will place a hood over your head. In all likelihood, he will use a sensory deprivation kit, an eye mask, duct tape, and noise diminishing headphones, even before he places the hood over your head. This does not place you at a disadvantage necessarily. It grants you access to your alien structure. Remember that the great anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss once said, the mask serves as the medium for men to enter into relations with the supernatural world. So we get the idea there of the mask as protection, but then uh, we get the idea, kind of introduced sideways, that the mask is also a space where one can go to be safe behind the mask and to transform in some way. So that there's this kind of like liminal space um, created by that disassociation between the true face and the mask face, the presented face, and that it's in that space where you can start to meet yourself. I also wanted to discuss the role of folklore in the novel because Norwegian folklore comes up, but I have a, a, suit of, a sort of two-pronged way of dealing with this. I want to discuss what the role of Norwegian folklore is in the novel and I also wanted to ask you, uh, do you think the topics she broach, such as these mind control conspiracy theories, the American obsession with dead girls, in a way have these become a new folklore for a digital age? And what does that entail? I don't know uh, if you want to deal with that first or the Norwegian folklore, but. Yeah. Um... Well, I love that question. I feel like you invented a new genre of digital folklore. Um, it makes me think of like, um, I've been reading about um, internet gothic fiction lately and digital folklore like seems related to that in some ways. In terms of the Norwegian folklore, the reason it's Norwegian is just because that's what I know. You know, that's my um, heritage that I know the most in my family. Um, so it was just natural to me for me to move from there. And also I'm working on um, a prequel to Monarch that looks um, at where the parent, where Jessica's parents come from and the origins of the Monarch program. And it made sense in terms of moving back through these um, CIA, MK Ultra offshoots to use Norway as one of the places where they go. Um, so anyway, that's, that's a totally other thing, but in terms of how, so essentially like, I think stories from folklore get repeated in different versions amongst different cultures, but they all have sort of these same archetypal ideas. So, so what I was doing was just taking some known folk tales and subverting them with the idea in mind. There's one point when Christine Jessica's babysitter um, tells her that all folklore is state propaganda and that the Grimm brothers were uh, propaganda artists. So it takes this idea that folklore tells us what our cultural values should be. Um, and then it rewrites some folk tales throughout. And 
Jessica's mother has this book that has these rewritten subverted folk tales that Jessica reads from. And this is a, essentially what helps her uh, conceive of the idea that there might be a different value system, right? So in terms of the internet and the idea of... Um, well, I, I was going to say real quick, I, I shouldn't have said a digital folklore. I guess what I meant was, I think we're even creating folklore today in the age of the internet, in, in the age of the digital, in the age of the 21st century. Not that it's a digital folklore, but that people think folklore is, oh, that's old, that, that's centuries old stuff. And no, we're always creating new folklore. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, two things. First, I think that if we also think of folklore is warnings, right? As teaching tools, essentially, like at their most basic about warning children not to go into that part of the forest, right? Um, then modern, more modern folklore that's disseminated through the internet specifically, or, you know, through certain media, news media, um, that is sort of fetishizes the dead girl is in its own way, uh, a kind of folklore, maybe specifically aimed at women about about how to approach the world, what to be afraid of. I mean, it feels to me like a lot of folklore tells us what to be afraid of and that that's a lot of what true crime does now. Um, and I don't know, I could say a lot about like the recent embrace of uh, true crime specifically by millennial women and how it relates to um, anxieties or helps process those anxieties. But maybe those are things that folklore does too, uh, is it helps us contextualize our anxieties, fears. At the same time, I think providing some kind of party line tip for lack of a better term, uh, that is a different kind of programming in terms of what we should avoid um, or not be like, or not present ourselves as in order to stay safe. So I remember reading recently, I think it was on um, the author Dennis Cooper's blog. I don't know if it was an interview with you or if it was just comments from you uh, that he had put in a blog post, uh, but you had talked about um, the occult and yeah. the concept of freedom. So how does the occult figure into things? and? I guess the big question I had is, what does the concept of freedom mean within mm -hmm. the context of monarch? Yeah, well, within the plot of monarch, um, the occult becomes really important because it's a seance that's used as the ultimately as the deprogramming tool um, in the end to disabuse her of the monarch programming. But yeah, my work has dealt with the occult for a long time and. I think what the occult is to me is um, the ability to think about things that are um, not within, it's like to think about psychic access in a way. Um, so the idea of introducing us to our subconscious, which is, you know, in the dark, it's occulted. So the idea of the occult being 
a tool that can be used, again, to go back to this idea of introducing you to yourself. And for me, freedom and monarch means the ability just to think your own thoughts to, you know, the sort of, I think Aristotelian idea of know thyself, um, to get the social programming uh, out of your system enough to have the freedom to know who you really are. And I guess that leads me to a question of, and maybe Monarch answers this in a way uh, that there is hope, but it seems like we're we're in the sort of uh, the heat of the the sort of spectacle. It's the 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 spectacle of a, a consumer society where uh, you know you are what you eat, you are what you consume. Uh, is freedom possible in this sort of hyper consumerist society? What what's your take on that? I know that gets really philosophical. Yeah. No, no, I have a take on it. I think it might be harder than ever. I think a lot about how much our perception of reality is based on algorithms now. Um, and the idea that if I, that I get back what I'm putting out. So, um, you know, just the reality that we're living most of our lives through the internet and that the internet remembers everything we've ever asked it to tell us about. And then it reproduces that in different ways until we get to a point where all we're seeing is a, a feed of um, things that we've already thought about. So it's very hard to get introduced to that occult element, that element that's outside of the frame of thought or outside of um, what we've already thought. So yeah, I think that it takes a lot of really conscious uh, reflection on why you're thinking about what you're thinking about, where the messages you're receiving are coming from. I also feel like we're maybe at an all time low in terms of critical thought on both ends of the political spectrum. Um, and that in order to attain the kind of freedom I'm talking about in Monarch, one, one does have to be able to trace the origins, right, of where messages are coming from. And that is harder and harder as the origin of messages come from the same place again and again. Uh, and that being a place that we were already maybe potentially interested in or already seeing. Um, so the echo chamber, I guess, is what I'm talking about, that we're getting the same thing echoed back again and again, and the chamber gets smaller. So it's really important, I think, to actively seek out something that pierces that repetition. I just had two more questions here. The first being, uh, before Monarch, you also have, uh, I believe, a book called uh, Death Industrial Complex, um, and I think they deal with similar themes. I have not had a chance to read Death Industrial Complex, but could you talk about that book and how it relates to Monarch? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, there's, I don't know if you can see, there's Death Industrial Complex. It's got some photos on it. Um, these are all from a photographer named Francesca Woodman, who worked in the 70, 70s. Um, she started taking self portraits when she was 13 and only lived for another, I think, eight years. But she's really, really interesting because she essentially subverts the self-portrait through things like um, 
time elapses on the lens or like putting Vaseline on the lens. So she quite actually, to go back to one of the first things I was talking about, layers time in her photographs because through the time elapse of the lens, we see more than one moment happening. So her photos for the most part have a really uncanny or ghostly quality um, because we're seeing like a person living in multiple, in multiple moments. Um, so I, so th that's who Francesca Woodman was. I always like to say who she was. She's, her photographs, um, you know, are now quite renowned in their own right. But even before that, the composition and the subject matter, her photos was, um, picked up by fashion magazines, mimicked. You can recognize the composition of a Woodman photo in an Urban Outfitters catalog. Um, like mirror to mirror. And so I, I like to point out that she was, um, is a significant artist aside from the fact that she committed suicide in, um, in a memorable way. She jumped off the roof of her apartment building. Um, and I think like Sylvia Plath, that's one of the reasons we remember her like we do, or maybe remember her, um, so, so much uh, and as much as there are people who remember her. So she's a person whose biography, specifically her death, always um, contextualizes her art, fairly or unfairly. And so Death Industrial Complex thinks through that. Uh, there's a line in Death Industrial Complex um, like, I think it's, don't let them say I was just a pretty girl, a thingish photo a part of the death industrial complex. So it's much more very directly pushing back against the idea of um, turning the dead girl into a consumer product, an object that can be sold. Which, yeah, Monarch picks up on that, obviously thematically. And, and also, I think both deal with the issue of, um, I guess you're very interested in identity formation. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Um, and it's through photographs that Jessica first starts, it gets triggered, right? Um, she is starting to take self-portraits that are down to the kind of camera that's used, the same process that Woodman was taking photos. So she sees herself in a photo and it's this moment of, um, it's almost like the mask meets the mask and then what's behind the mask can reveal itself, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's through the idea of um, being, being able to articulate oneself mindfully as an artist and present one's identity through craft and through art, as opposed to through um, consumer-driven forces. So very last thing I wanted to mention here, and this is off the cuff, and it's just been on my mind because of things in my life, but in reading Monarch, I know that this is a book that, you know, right at the beginning, you say that this is uh, for women who survived and women who didn't, and um, mostly for those who are still somewhere in between. So I, I think a lot of people think, okay, uh, th this is a, a book for women, but I, I felt like even as a guy, I could relate to it in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that the, the violence that is meted out um, throughout this book, uh, the, the sort of social programming uh, 
um, that is meted out against women in this book. I think we also see it uh, in ways with men and it allows me to relate to the book a lot more. So for instance, I, I recently had a relative who um, has really bad aggression pro problems and they said something telling to me, they said uh, that they don't know how to cry anymore. Mm -hmm. And I just think to myself, you know, society has really, in a lot of ways, programmed men not to be able to express their emotions. Uh, yeah. it, it's a society that is literally crushing everyone, male and female. So I guess yeah. I, I wanted to say to you, I think this is the book that whether you're a man, a woman or, or anything else, uh, I think this book uh, will appeal to a lot of people. Thank and you. I, I want you to comment on that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a book dedicated to women, but it's a book about patriarchy. Um, and, I, you know, I hate, I hate to use such like a, a buzzy cliche term now, but the toxicity caused by patriarchy um, and the idea that patriarchy doesn't just affect women. It, like you said, it affects all of us. Um, and I mean, that makes me think there's just a little moment in the book where we get a letter from Jessica's father. And he says something kind of similar to the story that you just told. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, is this the letter? I, I actually wrote this in my notes. The one line stood out and you, you can mention what you want to mention about it. But uh, I think it's the letter where he says, Jessica, you were born without a face and you created one with your own hands. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that gets directly at the idea of being an artist, of having to have some kind of, um, I mean, this connects to a, a lot of the things that I've been mentioning, um, but the idea of living in a consumer driven, increasingly algorithmic society, that creation is an act of creativity um, and rebellion in some ways. And it's, it's rigorous. It isn't, um, it does take a sort of artist soul, I think, to to figure out who you really are right now uh, and probably always has. Um, but yeah, there's a moment in that letter from Dr. Klink when he um, really confesses his shortcomings and his inability to have had the kind of relationship he wanted to have with her uh, as a father. And it's just this really, really small hint to the idea that Dr. Klink has also been um, cut short by the realities of his own life, cut short um, emotionally and intellectually, and that he himself is in many ways, well, actually the men in Monarch are so much more archetypal and flat um, and limited. It's almost like the men are doing masculinity as drag or something in Monarch, right? They just don't, we don't ever see any kind of interiority from them, uh, which is in part to point to the idea that they are from, you know, the dark academy, they're from um, government programs, they're from institutions that insist on that kind of rigorous conformity that arguably is even more uh, violent and pervasive for men, for people who represent um, masculinity and uphold our cultural values about that. So yeah, actually in um, the prequel that I'm working on for Monarch, which goes back to Dr. Clank and his origins, the, the part that I'm working on is really 
about that is about young Dr. Clink and his kind of um, obsession with Hollywood actors and um, aesthetics. And um, we, I can't remember the name of it, but it's like one of the first exercise books ever written, his sort of obsession with trying to attain a certain kind of physique. So we see these different, um, we see ways in which Dr. Clink is conforming um, that will ultimately lend themselves to him being being poached by um, by something related to MK Ultra. So since you mentioned Dr. Clink, and, and I was going to ask you this off here, but I might as well ask now, why is he a professor of boredom studies? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I in part was riffing off of Delillo's white noise and professor of Hitler studies. I wanted there to be in the beginning um, for readers who would pick up on it, um, a direct pointing uh, to Monarch's relationship and lineage lineage of um, other novels that are about um, you know, the themes that White Noise is about, dark suburbia and uh, consumer culture and things like that. Um, but he's also a professor of boredom studies because I, I've just always been obsessed with this, not always, but have for a long time uh, been really interested in this book um, by um, Giorgio Lagombin about animals. And there's a chapter in that book that is about boredom in animals, in which animals experience boredom, um, and that it is boredom in part that makes us human. So I made him a professor of boredom studies because I just wanted to think through some of the ideas about um, how our perception and attention uh, are integral to our humanity, but also are, um, as you mentioned, part of our identity formation. And I was, you know, I was studying memory. I was taking all these memory studies courses and boredom seemed like such an interesting aspect of memory to me. Uh, and also forgetfulness or like if you, if you think back the parts you don't remember in detail the parts of your life when you were bored. So what's going on there? Um, that's a, in some ways a part of our lives that are occulted and rife for dissection in the eyes of Dr. Clank. Is there anything, because I, I, I should have mentioned it earlier, but is there anything from your study of memory and trauma, you, you know, you wrote a whole dissertation on it. Is there anything that people don't understand about memory and trauma that you think yeah. they maybe should start realizing and maybe they'll realize it when they read the book? I don't know if you'll realize this when you read the book, but um, I think what people don't understand about trauma from a trauma studies perspective uh, is that trauma is a memory structure. And I've, during this discussion, been talking about negative, violent forms of trauma. But essentially the structure of trauma can, so there's some um, initial moment that can't be incorporated when it happens because we don't have the language to explain it um, or the capacity to understand it. Time goes by, there's um, you know sort of liminal phase 
And then something potentially happens, a point B happens where we get the language to describe what happened in the moment of trauma. And then we can start to uh, incorporate the trauma. So uh, a lot of the language of trauma is really metaphorical, right? We use the phrase frozen in the moment of trauma. Um, and that goes right into the book in terms of freezing in the cryo chambers. But you don't necessarily just experience trauma because something bad has happened. Um, the main example I always use is that many people are traumatized at their weddings. Um, a lot of the time, if you ask people to recall uh, exchanging vows or the day of their wedding, they'll say it was a blur um, or any like exceptionally happy day, a graduation or some major achievement will be described um, as a blur. There's some kind of absence there. And that's the structure of trauma too. And it's just a thing that you couldn't take in in the moment. So uh, I think this was something that really came up a lot during my um, dissertation defense is uh, that when you expand the definition of trauma to not just be uh, heinous events, uh, then that structure becomes a lot more useful in terms of understanding all kinds of ways that we remember. And I've always found it really interesting in terms of thinking about um, how we remember or interpret moments to be creepy or eerie or uncanny. Well, Candace Will, I wanna thank you for coming on Parallax Views. And I hope everyone will check out your book, Monarch, a novel. Uh, anything else you wanna say in closing? And uh, let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work and purchase a copy of the book. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. It was really fun to talk with you about the book. Um, you can get Monarch through your local independent bookstore. They'll all be able to get it. Um, and you can find me. I'm on um, Twitter and Instagram. My name's really uh, unique, so I'm the only one on there as Candace Wheely. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Candace Willey, author of Monarch, a novel. It's her debut novel, and it is quite the mind-bender. And kudos to the fine folks at Soft Skull Press for publishing it. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You can support me at the $1, $5, $10, $15, or $100 tiers. Any amount will help. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm 
I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.